This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening. Good evening or good morning to you, wherever you might be, or good day if you're listening over the Internet, sometime after tonight, probably. Uh, This is Radio Orbit. You're listening to it on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it is your imagination station, the home for Radio Orbit every Sunday morning from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., Coming to you live here from 915 East Broadway in downtown Columbia. 
And my name is Mike Hagan, and I'm your host every week here. So, uh, thanks to Gail real fast. Great show uh, from Gail, as always. And thanks to all the listeners out there that help support Gail uh, meeting her goal or exceeding her goal tonight on our pledge drive. As most people know by now, if you listen to KOPN regularly, uh, you know that it is we're sort of in the middle of our pledge drive week. We do this three times a year. Uh, we come out to the community and the folks out there that are listening to the station and ask for your help to, uh, uh, to help support KOPN and the programs that you listen to to help keep them on the air. And uh, you're going to be getting a little bit more of the same of that uh, tonight from me. I'll be trying to talk you into parting ways with some of your hard-earned dollars and try to give you some good reasons or remind you of some reasons why you might want to do that um, with regard to uh, the station in general and, uh, and this, this program, Radio Orbit, in particular. Uh, so um, before we get going, I'll say a couple things real fast. Uh, again, thanks to Gail real fast. And there were a couple people who asked how my puppies are doing. <laughs> and uh, the puppies are doing well. They're 10 weeks old now, and um, they're doing well, and they're, they're hilarious, actually. And uh, they, they run around the house and outside, and my, my 16-month-old son chases after them, and they chase after him, and they tackle each other <clears throat> and uh, roll around and cry and scream and yell and laugh and have a blast. So it's real cool, and uh, it's pretty pretty fun uh, and interesting experience to watch uh, a small child uh, grow and uh, sort of evolve with these small animals at the same time. Uh, really a neat thing to watch, and I, I, I just uh, sort of uh, uh, picture five years from now or six years from now or ten years from now or whatever and what uh, how the relationship might be between those two dogs and each other, quite frankly. They're amazing how close they are to one another. Uh, but uh, also to see what sort of relationship develops between them and my son. So anyway, uh, uh, not particularly something that we need to talk about, but thanks for those who asked. And, um, yeah, the puppies are doing good, and they're cool. And their names are Maisie and McKenna, by the way. Uh, Maisie and McKenna, and they're both girls. So um, so thanks for asking. Okay, the email address here uh, is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. The website, as always, www.radioorbit, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, radioorbit.com. You can always uh, find out what's going on in the program, what's going on around the world um, by uh, hooking up with Radio Orbit and then following some of the links uh, that I have set up there for you. And uh, Okay, uh, the numbers here in the studio Area code 573-874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. One more time, I'll give those. Area code 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. I'm going to take a little time here to talk about the pledge drive. And uh, I'm by myself in the studio tonight. I was hoping to have a friend here um, help me out with the phones. And God willing, he may still show up. Uh, If not, that's no big deal. We'll try to work it out. Um, uh, for those listening, uh, if you do want to pledge something and uh, uh, there is nobody else here, I'd ask that you call during the breaks, call during the music breaks that I'll take 
We'll be taking a music break in about 10 minutes here, and uh, then we'll take another one every uh, every half hour or so uh, between now and 5 a.m. So if you are interested in giving and you haven't heard me uh, say that my compadre is here to help me uh, pick up the phones, then uh, please do me a favor and don't call while I'm on the air here because I just can't get it at the same time, and I hate to say that because uh, I want you to call no matter what. Um, but if possible, please try to call during the music breaks, okay? That way I'll have a chance to answer the phone. Um, now, as far as the, fro- the program tonight, um, I'm not going to be uh, ho- hawking uh, or trying to get you to ho- or trying to hawk cash from you all night, but um, uh, we're going to do an interview in about uh, 50 minutes, and that's a live interview that's coming from London, England, and we're going to be talking with Nick Cook. Nick Cook is the former uh, aviation editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, one of the Bibles of aerospace techno- technology on this planet, not just in this country. Jane's has run out of, uh, uh, out of England, uh, but is considered the preeminent journal uh, in the biz when it comes to uh, aviation and aerospace and military technology in general. So uh, uh, Nick Cook is a, uh, an aerospace insider, somebody who has been uh, beyond what we call the white world, and into the deep black world of classified projects, classified exotic energy and propulsion uh, technologies. And these are the sorts of things that we're going to be talking about tonight. Nick uh, has written a book. It's called The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, it's an incredible book, and it uh, gives an historical account of um, the uh, the roots and the evolution and the development of some of these technologies and where they are today and what's really going on behind the scenes. So should be a real eye-opening interview for uh, uh, for lots of people, and I'm real pleased to be talking to uh, to Nick. Uh, he's he's the real deal. He's an insider, like I said before, and he's been in the aerospace industry uh, for many many years and with a tremendous amount of influence and uh, um, and. Uh, levels of contact, high levels of contact within those industries. So Nick Cook coming up in just about 50 minutes. That's one of the reasons why you should be uh, considering donating some money to help keep this program on the air. Um, Again, thanks for the nice emails. Uh, Hello to everyone listening over the web. Uh, First, okay, Pledge Drive Week. So tonight I'm going to be asking you to show your support for this program. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do it with your pocketbook. KLPN is, as most people know, a community radio station. We're supported fully uh, by the people out there in the community that listen to these programs and that, uh, um, and that back them up with their money. And 80% of the programming that you hear on KOPN is done right here, right here in the studio uh, where I'm at right now. It's done by local people, community, community folks, just like, just like you, just like me. And um, there's no money involved. I'm a volunteer. I don't get paid. Uh, to come up here and do this program. Each week I come here to you and I, I try to bring what I consider the cutting edge of information and uh, uh, guests and topics and subject matter that can help us, or at least my intention is to try to help us navigate uh, in this labyrinthian reality that uh, that's now in place on our planet. And uh, um, I do that... Um, for you guys, I have a lot of fun doing it, but it's a lot of work as well. I put a lot of work in uh, to this program during the week to get these things ready for you. Um, uh, Nick Cook, for example, isn't a guy that just uh, uh, decides uh, for uh, for grins that he's going to do two hours uh, of live radio in the United States uh, with me. 
it took a you know it takes a little bit of uh, of doing to get these guys who agree to doing some of these things. Nick Cook, uh, he's been on uh, some of the larger uh, syndicated uh, talk shows that uh, that I guess uh, this show kind of falls into uh, a genre. Uh, with uh, some other programs that are on the air, nationally syndicated programs. In fact, um, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, when I was driving in tonight on one of, if if not one of, I'm sure it's the largest, uh, the most listened to uh, late night talk program uh, on the dial anywhere in the country, and I think most of you probably know who I'm talking about, but uh, on that particular program tonight, it was incredible. As I was driving in at 1.15, about an hour ago, I heard Scott Stevens on that program. And uh, for those of you who listen to this show, Scott Stevens is a meteorologist, a television weatherman, and um, uh, out in the Pacific Northwest. And he's been on this program twice. He was on first in November and then again in December. Um, well, since uh, Scott Stevens has been on this program, he's since been on the Jeff Rents program. Uh, Jeff is a friend of mine uh, who has a nationally syndicated uh, a talk show that's on over 200 stations around the country. And then, as I said tonight, and no reason why not to mention it, uh, Scott was on Art Bell as I was coming in. So these are the sorts of people that we're getting to talk to you on Radio Orbit. Uh, Scott Stevens was on this program before he was on the Art Bell show, before he was on the Jeff Rents program. So hopefully that gives you a little idea of um, the uh, the relationships that I've developed with these people and the level of... Um, uh, reliability and uh, integrity and the level of intelligence of the people that I try to bring to this program. So please try to keep that in mind um, and give me a call here at 573-874-5676 and show me that that means something to you um, with your money. Uh, you know, f the, the world is changing faster and faster each moment. Um, and I've made a commitment on this show, on, on this program, to try to bring some of what I see, and uh, and what I've experienced of this increasingly complex situation that we have here. Um, I try to bring that to you and try to share it to you, uh, share it with you. At, it, you know, 50 weeks a w 50 weeks a year or so, 49 weeks I guess. We have three pledge drives a week, so 49 weeks a year, I'm going to come here and I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you uh, that I'll do it. I'll continue to do it. I make that commitment to you. Um, and I'm going to try to continue to bring this stuff to you. Um, insiders, heavy hitters like Nick Cook, like Dr. Paul LaViolette, who was on the show last week. Uh, in fact, uh, let's look at a quick uh, list of guests that have been on this program in the last six months. And um, uh, again, this is to try to encourage you to recognize what a unique program this is and what we're trying to do here on Radio Orbit. Of course, we've had uh, Kent Stedman uh, was on... Uh, a number of times over the last six months, and Kent is my guru and uh, a close friend of mine, an inspiration, someone who helped me come up with the concept for this program. He is a sage, a bard. Um, it is an incredible opportunity for all of us, including myself and all of you out there listening, to get to uh, to be able to hear Kent's ideas and thoughts and words as, freq uh, as frequently as we get to hear them here on Radio Orbit. And... Um, uh, Kent, of course, the proprietor of cyberspaceorbit.com, but just an incredible guy and a guy who I'm real fortunate uh, to be friends with and somebody who you're real fortunate to be able to get to hear often. 
So think about that. Uh, we've had Kelly Naylor and John Cranshaw on the program from the School of, Meta, uh, School of Metaphysics right here, in, right here in Columbia. In fact, I saw Kelly last night. She was in here helping, um, uh, helping out with the pledge drive uh, on Friday night. So uh, uh, lots of people get involved even behind the scenes here at KOPN. So thanks to, thanks to Kelly for coming and helping out last night. Uh, G. Edward Griffin has been on the program, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, among other things, uh, the preeminent uh, expose on the Federal Reserve System, and a guy who knows more about things like the New World Order uh, than most. And uh, again, a very heavy hitter who was on this program last September. Uh, we've had Dr. Colin Ross on the program, uh, a, uh, a psychiatrist who runs the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma, who talked to us about mind control technologies and the history uh, of covert and overt uh, research and development into mind control and mind control technologies. Uh, we've had Lucy Pringle on the line here live from England before as well. Lucy is a crop formation researcher and one of the best in the business, been doing it for 25 years, and that interview with Lucy was incredible. Uh, and uh, um, Joseph Chilton Pierce, a gentleman who knows more about child development and brain development than almost anybody on the planet, somebody who's an incredible resource and a great, uh, a great, great value to uh, to most people out there, especially if you have children. Joe's been on the show, and he's a friend of mine. Dr. Michael Heisen, the amazing Michael Heisen, the marine biologist who's doing incredible work with dolphins and cetacea at the Sirius Institute in Hawaii. We've done a live program with Dr. Heisen. We're going to do that again in the next few months. I talked to Michael just yesterday. Uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna requires no introduction, hopefully, for people who are listeners of this program. Uh, Bill Line. We talked to you about anti-gravity and Tesla technology. Scott Stevens, of course, I just mentioned. Jonathan Miller Weisberger, an ethnobotanist from Costa Rica. A live interview from Costa Rica that we did a few weeks ago. Actually, it wasn't live. It was recorded, but still it was an incredible thing. Uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette. Tonight, Nick Cook from Jane's Defense Weekly. These are the sorts of people that I'm trying to bring and that I will continue to bring to this program and to, and to, uh, to avail their knowledge and information to you guys, to my listeners, um, and I've got a whole bunch more planned. I'm going to blow people's minds this year. That is the goal, and uh, we've got some incredible uh, people lined up to come on this program and some great ideas. So, uh, so there are lots of great things happening here at Radio, Radio Orbit. There are lots of great things happening at KOPN in general. Uh, I couldn't be more pleased with, uh, uh, with what I see happening around the station right now. Um, there's just a, a new... Uh, sort of a newfound energy that seems to be buzzing through here. Lots of really uh, forward-thinking and interesting people and creative people that we get to uh, we get to work with and uh, and play with here. So uh, anyway, I'm just real pleased about the way things are going at the station right now, and um, and I'd like to see uh, that you guys feel the same way about it. So please. Uh, when we do take a break here in a few minutes, give me a call at 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676 and pledge your support to Radio Orbit and to KOPN and uh, keep uh, this live, vibrant, imaginative, creative radio on the air. Okay? I'm, uh, I'm, gonna, um, I'm not going to make a big drama out of this whole pledge drive thing. I'm going to do a big pitch right here at the beginning, like I said, um, 
And I've got a lot of things on my mind for later in the show. Where I've gonna, like I said, I'm gonna, I've got a live interview going from London. I've got nobody here to help me right now. So, um, uh, so we're going to try to get the pledge drive stuff out of the way. I may make a mention of it in between at the breaks if we're not doing well, which we may or may not be doing. Um, but uh, I'm not going to push it all night. I'm going to push it right now, and I'll mention a couple things at the breaks. Um, and other than that, we're going to do the program as normal. Okay, but I'm going to leave you with one thing with regard to supporting this station and this program. Uh, then we'll do space weather and uh, get on with things, okay? Um, what I want to read to you is a letter that I received in the mail on Thursday. Last weekend, I made a couple of uh, requests on the show. Uh, if people wanted to pledge early, they could because I did a recorded interview last week and I was available uh, to listen to the telephone, uh, to pick up the telephone. Um, and uh, I did actually get a pledge last week and I got a letter on Thursday. And uh, I'm not sure who it's from. It came anonymously with just some initials on it. Uh, but it looks like uh, a woman's penmanship because it's very nicely written. Um, but I just want to read it to you. It's real fast. And I want you to uh, uh, keep it in mind when you're trying to decide if you should, uh, if you should help support this program uh, and this radio station. And, by the way, this is why I do the program. And if the show doesn't make you feel like this, like, like what I'm going to read you right now, then I don't want your money. But if it does make you feel like this, then I would appreciate your support. And by the way, for anybody who calls tonight, I will match all the pledges. If somebody gives $50, I'll put in $50 of my own money uh, all night, as long as I can afford it within reason. If somebody gives a million bucks, I'm, I, I'm not going to go bankrupt over it. But I will do my best to match every single pledge that comes in tonight. Um, and... Uh, uh, um, also, uh, you know, there's all kinds of cool things that I can give away um, with these pledges. Uh, in addition to the, some of the premiums that KOPN offers, I've got some stuff myself. I've got uh, a subscription to Fate Magazine for somebody. I've got a copy of Nick Cook's book, The Hunt for Zero Point, that we're going to be discussing tonight. Um, I'll give a high-quality MP3 copy of any of my past programs, including this one, to anybody who wants it. Um, I will uh, give an archive of the entire website of cyberspaceorbit.com on CD-ROM, a CD-ROM of the entire ar uh, archive of uh, Kent Stedman's website, Cyberspace Orbit. Um, there's a bunch of CDs here, T-shirts, coffee mugs, all kinds of different things. Um, and for a small pledge, uh, even a $40 pledge, uh, gets you all kinds of those types of things, lots of different stuff. So, again, when we go to break here, uh, do me a favor and give me a call at 573-874-5676 and uh, let me know that you give a damn about this program and about this radio station, okay? All right, here's a letter that I received uh, just a couple days ago. And, again, it underlies why I do this program and, uh, and why it's on the air. Dear Mike, I live in Kansas and can only listen to your program over the Internet, especially through cyberspaceorbit.com. I've followed Kent's work for many years. You are doing admirable work getting this information to some who have no other means to hear. I wish I could send more than the token enclosed. Tough times, even for the spiritually vested. Best to you and your family and everybody at Radio Orbit. So this is a person who sent me $2. He sent me two $1 bills enclosed in that incredibly heartfelt letter and uh if you hear a waver in my voice it's it's real you know because it touches my heart when i see things like that and um it touched my heart and i don't care if it was two dollars it could have been two thousand dollars 
um, and it would have felt the same way to me. Uh, in fact, $2 maybe feels better because I know how much it means to that person. So um, with that in mind, let's take a break here and uh, play a little music that's fitting for the occasion. It's Pledge Drive Week at KOPN. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. If you're interested in supporting the program, give me a call right now, 573-874-5676. We'll be back. We'll do space weather. We've got Nick Cook live from London coming on in about 35 minutes. And in the meantime, this is Screaming Trees. The song is called Dollar Bill. Back in a moment. I got 
an old dollar bill an old dollar bill that's what I'm looking for a couple dollar bills here KOPN Radio Orbit it's 2.30 a.m. on Sunday morning the 30th of January this is Mike Hagan and it's Pledge Drive Week I'll say it one more time at the next break I'd sure appreciate it if you could call in show your support for this program for KOPN area code 573-874-5676-1800 Eight nine five five six seven six. If you're outside of the five seven three area code, okay. Space weather, aurora watch. Today, yesterday, uh, tomorrow, the Earth is uh, entering into a pretty speedy solar wind, sparking some pretty intense geomagnetic storms. Sky watchers up in the north, Canada. Alaska, Scandinavian countries going to get some great auroras over the next few days. If you're listening over the web and you're up in those northern latitudes, check it out over the next couple of mornings, okay? Uh, solar flares, as you know, last week and over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the significant solar activity that's been going on. Um, we have uh, an X-class flare there have been a number of them over the last couple of weeks, but a big one last Sunday, if you remember right, and that caused the most intense radiation storm here on Earth that uh, has been seen in about 15 years, since about 1989. And in fact, the one that, was, uh, that happened in 1989 shut down uh, a large portion of the North American electrical grid and the Canadian grid and the, and the uh, Mexican grid. Uh, so anyway, uh, always interesting to watch what's going on in the sun. We'll have Kent Stedman on the program next week, and we'll be talking about this stuff live uh, with Kent um, as uh, that big giant sunspot 720 should be rolling a back uh, back around from the back side of the sun and should be uh, on the visible front side of the disk again as of next week. So we'll have to see what that sunspot area has in store for us again. And um, so uh, we'll be keeping you up on that as we always do. If um, uh, just a sort of a novel thing. It's uh, if it's cold out where you live, and it's certainly cold out where we live right now. Uh, if you look up at the sky um, during these sorts of days, you might see what's called a sun halo, and this is called by uh, caused by little tiny particles of ice that are suspended in the in the atmosphere that are floating in the air, and uh, when the sunlight moves through them, they sort of catch it and bend the light, and it uh, 
Uh, it appears as a sort of halo around the sun, and a lot of us have seen this before, but weren't, maybe weren't, uh, weren't sure exactly what was happening there, what was going on. So that's what it is. So uh, interesting. As always, okay, potentially hazardous asteroids, nothing particularly uh, important, nothing new to report, um, and that's about it for space weather. We'll kind of blow through this real fast. But as I said, next week um, we'll do a little bit more of an intense talk on space weather and what's going on up there above our heads. And um, uh, because we'll have Kent on the air and we'll be looking uh, uh, to see what's happening with that sunspot uh, number 720 that should be rolling back around by then. Okay, we'll be back in just a minute. We'll do uh, um, a couple stories and then we'll get Nick Cook on the phone here and talk with him uh, about anti-gravity technology. Back in a minute, you're listening to Mike Hagen on KOPN Radio Orbit. Okay, got that business out of the way. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN uh, before I get to a couple of stories that I want to read before Nick gets on the air, I want to make a quick uh, uh, comment about the earthquake and resulting tsunami that occurred uh, at the end of December. Uh, there is still a lot and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of talk going on and a lot of interesting things happening um, still with that situation. The earth is still in a state of resonance. There is still lots of uh, uh, activity occurring. The earthquake activity since the 25th of December has been unprecedented. Things are still very interesting, uh, especially in that particular part of the world. The Andaman quakes uh, continue uh, around the Andaman Islands. There have been 5.0s up to 6.0s uh, that have been uh, consistently coming day after day. And this happened again yesterday, and uh, it's just got to scare the hell out of those folks down there. Um, but uh, there are, if you look at the seismogram, uh, the seismogram uh, for the Andaman Islands area, the Indian Ocean, uh, yesterday and the day before, you just see this, n- d- just a incredible uh, stroke of that pen, so to speak, as the seismograph uh, registers all the shaking that's going on there. And um, there, even in uh, the mainstream newspapers in India, they're talking about something different going on now, a change that they've recognized within the tectonic plates themselves. So. This is something that we need to continue to watch, <clears throat> and um, uh, just uh, for what it's worth, Tom Bearden uh, has a letter posted on his site, uh, which is chenier, uh, dot, uh, dot org. Um and uh, don't quote me on that. Go uh, If you want to find out about Tom Bearden, and we may touch on some of Tom's material tonight, uh, just go put uh, the name Tom, Colonel Tom Bearden into a website search engine, but I'll read the letter real fast. This is a note from Tom Bearden uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, an associate. He says at least 60 to 70 percent chance it was artificially induced, probably by Yakuza, acting under coordination of FSB KGB. The quake occurred on December 25th. KGB FSB likes to choose dates of significance, so this may have been the Christmas gift. Uh, it took about a day to reach the shorelines, etc., to do the damage. Needed to be able to make on demand a quake of at least 9.0 intensity for the planned use against the U.S. demonstrated to the FSB KGB and the Yakuza have achieved necessary skill and training for deliberate induction of that level quake intensity supposedly produced on the ocean bottom. Also, stimulates to the U.S. with a provocative demo to see if the U.S. recognizes what it really is. The U.S. doesn't. Now fits several future intended uses against the U.S. at will, including the two main ones I put on the threat threat paper uh, up on the website. So I suspect it was artificially induced as a multiple-purpose test by Yakuza, acting on instructions of the FSB KGB. 
So this comes uh, in print from Colonel Tom Bearden. Take that for what it's worth, okay? Um, we'll uh, be back in just a few minutes. Uh, play one more bit of music here, and I'm going to get Nick Cook on the phone. We'll do a couple stories, and then we'll, uh, we'll get down to business with, um, uh, with Nick and uh, talking about his book, The Hunt for Zero Points. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, Natalie Merchant from Tiger Lily. This is called San Andreas Fault.
All right, that's Natalie Merchant from Tiger Lily. That song is called San Andreas Fault. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. It's about 2.45 in the a.m. on early Sunday morning, the 30th of January. And uh, we'll be getting going with uh, Nick Cook, uh, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point, an aerospace insider in his own right, and uh, an incredible guy that we're going to be talking to in just a, uh, just a few minutes here. But before that, let's uh, do a couple other stories to sort of set up that, uh, that conversation a little bit better. This one uh, in particular uh, ties in with the program that we did last weekend as well with Dr. Paul LaViolette. And uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll read a little bit of this article real quick and then uh, make a couple comments on it. Uh, this is from the, uh, uh, from the Toronto Globe and Mail. And the article starts, Cosmic Oddity Casts Doubt on Theory of Universe. It's by a science writer named Dan Falk. And I actually like Dan Falk. He's a good writer. Um, okay. Uh, a new analysis of the echo of the Big Bang has, co- have, has left cosmologists scratching their heads and could throw a monkey wrench into efforts to understand how the universe began. U.S. and European scientists analyzed the distribution of hot and cold regions, areas that are putting out greater or lesser amounts of energy than the average of the cosmic microwave background radiation, this so-called echo. What they found was unexpected, an apparent correlation between those hot and cold spots and the orientation and motion of our solar system. All of this is mysterious, says Glenn Starkman, a Canadian physicist based at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and one of the authors of a recent paper in physical review letters that outlined the finding. And the strange thing is, the more you delve into it, the more mysteries you find. Well, for those who listen to this program, that's not... A strange thing. In fact, that's the way the world works, we think. But in any case, the study by Case Western scientists and the European Center for Nuclear Research in Geneva is based on data from the WMAP satellite, the NASA spacecraft that began mapping the cosmic microwave background uh, radiation in fine detail in 2001. They go on to say that the observed correlation is troubling on several fronts. And uh, they go into some detail there. But what I will say, uh, we, we've, uh, I've read enough of that article to make its point. If you listened to Dr. LaViolette last weekend, um, uh, you have an idea uh, about this stuff right now. And to make the long story short, in my opinion, uh, this is another peek behind the curtain of the Achilles heel of science. Um, In the case of cosmology, or how the universe began, quite frankly, uh, science hasn't a clue uh, as to what is really going on here. The Big Bang is no different, Uh, although it's the most outrageous theory of of, of all, uh, and theory is what these things are. We have to remember that science is based on theories, and theories are things that can be disproven, they can... can, uh, uh, come into favor and go out of favor. There are some things that are considered taboo uh, that you can't even touch. Uh, um, there are all kinds of different things that are going on in these realms. But, but science in particular uh, has a theory that they call the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, in my opinion, is nothing uh, is no different than any other religious statement. It requires faith. It, 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 it is no different than let there be light. Um, and Uh, This is one of the things that science is now showing us. Science has sort of shot itself in the foot because 
uh, in pursuing science, science has shown itself that even it cannot come up with these underlying answers, these under, underlying mysteries. And that's the one thing that science can't handle. Science wants closure. Science wants all the answers. The universe is an open-ended system, and, and scientists and science are continuously astounded by new data that confounds them utterly, and uh, they want this closure. So this article uh, is another look at that uh, to show that oftentimes science doesn't have the answers, and they're asking as many questions as everybody else is. And I think that's important to keep in mind, especially with what we're going to be talking about in uh, 10 or 15 minutes here with Nick Cook. Just because things sound strange or sound uh, out of this world doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Uh, history is peppered with, uh, with instances of things that seemed unbelievable, but then eventually became self-evident and taken as uh, uh, just a part of everyday life. So there's no reason to think that these things aren't still going on and that they won't continue to go on. Okay. Uh, now, uh, to get really to the meat of what we're going to be talking about tonight, I'll read one more story. And this is from Jane's Defense Weekly from a couple of years ago when, uh, when Nick was uh, uh, just getting this book uh, uh, out and getting some legs underneath it. So this story, uh, again, from Jane's and it says, anti-gravity propulsion comes out of the closet. This is from July 29th of 2002. And I won't read the whole article. Uh, we'll, let, uh, we'll let Nick talk a little bit about it. Uh, but anyway, it starts out like this. It says, Boeing, the world's largest aircraft manufacturer, has admitted it is working on experimental anti-gravity projects that could overturn a century of conventional aerospace propulsion technology if the science underpinning them can be engineered into hardware. As part of the effort which is being run out of Boeing's Phantom Works Advanced Research and Development Facility in Seattle. The company is trying to solicit the services of a Russian scientist who claims he has developed anti-gravity devices in Russia and Finland. The approach, however, has been thwarted by Russian officialdom. The Boeing drive to develop a collaborative relationship with the scientist in question, Dr. Evgeny Pod, uh, Podkletnov, has its own internal project, GRASP, Gravity Research for Advanced Space Propulsion. A GRASP briefing document obtained by Jane's Defense Weekly sets out what Boeing believes to be at stake. If gravity modification is real, it says, it will alter the entire aerospace business. And uh, they go on to talk about a number of other things, but we'll follow up on this with Nick Cook. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, Jane's Defense Weekly, one of the Bibles uh, of military uh, technology, uh, especially um, uh, in the aerospace and aviation areas, uh, Jane's is considered one of the preeminent uh, sources uh, for research and development information uh, in these fields. And so if it's in Jane's, there's a good chance that uh, it might be something that you want to listen to. Uh, in the meantime, listen to this. We'll be back with, um, uh, with Nick Cook in just a moment, the author, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, in the meantime, this is, oh, what do we got here? This is Space Hog from Resident Alien. The song is called Zeros. Again, back in a minute with Nick Cook, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point. Just a moment, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM.
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Welcome back to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, as always, your host on Sunday mornings. And tonight, I'm very pleased to bring a special guest on the air with me. Uh, the guest this evening, his name is uh, Nick Cook. And Nick is the former aviation uh, editor at Jane's Defense Weekly. Jane's, of course, one of the prominent uh, sources of information with regard to military and uh, aerospace technology, Jane's recognized around the world as a leader in that particular realm. And uh, I'm not sure if Nick uh, still has a relationship with Jane's. We'll ask him that as soon as uh, we get him on the air here. But in any case, he was the uh, the editor for uh, at least 10 years of the aviation division at Jane's. And uh, about two years ago, he wrote a book called The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, it's an incredible book and, it's, uh, and, uh, and historical uh, sort of adventure uh, through the past and into the present um, with regard to the uh, development and classified underground, no pun intended, research uh, that has existed for many years uh, in the area of exotic energy and propulsion. In this case, we're talking primarily, uh, primarily about anti-gravity propulsion. Uh, but in any case, without further ado, live from... Somewhere in England, I'm guessing it's the London area, uh, here's Nick Cook, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point. Nick, hi. Thanks very much for being with us tonight. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I want to get that out of the way. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of a very busy schedule and uh, spending uh, some time here with me and my listeners. We really do appreciate it. So. Well, that's a great pleasure. It's, uh, it's morning here, of course, and I am in London, so um, I can confirm at least... Um, Two of those facts. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Uh, hey, let's get that out of the way real fast. Are you still um, uh, doing work uh, for Jane's, or do you still have a relationship with them? No, I've still got a very strong relationship with Jane's. Um, you're absolutely right. I was the aviation editor there for more than 10 years, in fact, um, about 13 years. And then when the book came out, I was so busy um, promoting that and other things that I kind of took a bit of a sabbatical. I was still associated with the magazine, still doing articles for them, right. but as a consultant. In fact, just last week, I've kind of reaffirmed my um, my links with James. I've got a new uh, technology brief there, which will take me off into some new and exciting areas. So uh, the relationship goes on. All right. Well, that's great. That's good to hear. Uh, that that was one of the uh, one of the questions that I got from a listener beforehand. He said, "Ask uh, ask Nick what." 
his relationship is now since the writing of uh, The Hunt for Zero Point, what his relationship is with um, uh, uh, Jane's in particular, but also in general some of your peers out there uh, in, the, uh, in the aerospace industry. Have you found um, uh, that you're still being received well or are, or, or are you seeing something, uh, something else happen, Nick? Well, it's been an extraordinary thing, actually. I mean, I, I should also preface um, this, perhaps, and just go back to James by saying that they were incredibly supportive about the book and its themes, which was very unusual, considering, I mean, anyone who's read the book will know that I was leery about uh, breaking surface with this book, which deals in aerospace terms with a complete taboo. Right. Uh, no one in my field of endeavor uh, would, in their right mind, go off and, and, and uh, willingly um, go out there, stick their head above the parapet and talk about anti-gravity technology because it was just one of those things that was associated with kind of pulp 1950s science fiction films. But, you know, as I dug into it, I knew that there was something there. Right. Not necessarily at the outset that there was, a, there was a deep, dark secret waiting to be exposed, but there was certainly in scientific terms, something that should be investigated. So uh, the aerospace community, too, has been very um, very supportive since the publication of the book. Again, something that very much surprised me, and we can go into that a little bit later. Okay. But uh, it was the feedback that I got from that community, um, you know, since I've gone out there into the field uh, and into some quite um, secretive areas of, uh, of, of the aerospace and defense community, and I've had handshakes from people saying, good on you. Right. All right. Well, that's great, and I think that's a good place to start. Um, let's uh, let's do a little bit real fast on your background, um, uh, how you got into the aerospace uh, thing to begin with. We can just do that real quick, and then sort of the uh, I'm interested in what the trigger was. What uh, what sort of set you off on this tangent that ended up uh, becoming the hunt for zero point? And uh, uh, there had to be some event or something that I'm guessing that sort of that sort of sparked you. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your history, and then and then and then what set you off on this uh, on this adventure. Sure. Um, well, I started out in the business in 1983. I just left university. Um, I wasn't entirely sure when I left university what I wanted to do, but I knew it. I wanted to do something with the, the aerospace community. I'd always been very interested in aerospace. My father was an engineer who had a long-standing interest in aviation, um, so it kind of felt like a natural thing. I didn't really want to uh, go into the engineering aspects of that industry, but I wanted to report on it somehow, as I felt that it was uh, a key cutting-edge um, area of innovation. Okay. And so I drifted into the business. Um, I started writing for uh, uh, newsletters and professional uh, publications. And then in 1987, I joined James Defense Weekly, uh, first of all as a reporter, and then a year and a half later, I moved up to aviation editor. And really, so since 1988, or thereabouts, I'd been uh, reporting in this kind of rarefied, fortunate enough to be in this very rarefied position of having doors open to you because James has very good access, obviously. Right, right. And then I started drifting into subjects that people either weren't covering at the time or which particularly drew me. I mean, one of them was uh, I found myself in the late 1980s reporting on Soviet developments because it was very difficult to gain access to Soviet developments, the Iron Curtain was still very much in place. 
but I've always been attracted by stories which uh, on, the out, on, on, on the outside seem very impenetrable. And through kind of uh, developing a network of intelligence sources this side of the Iron Curtain and then later, um, as the Soviet Union opened up, I was able to go into the Soviet Union and dig around and look for myself. You know, I was able to find stories which had just never been reported in defense terms, which, right, right. of course, for a reporter is always very fruitful ground. <laughs> and then from there, I kind of drifted into um, reporting on American U.S. black programs, again, because they were attractive uh, from the point of view of uh, very difficult to penetrate. Not many people uh, were covering them at the time. And so uh, gradually, I found myself covering stories that were uh, kind of uh, either had some deep, dark, secretive element to them or were just not being covered very um, comprehensively. Okay. And it was in that kind of environment, really, that um, that uh, I, I drifted into the whole anti-gravity story. Okay, well, um, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned black projects, and maybe we could do a little bit on that real fast. In other words, we, we hear early on in the book, actually, about... Um, Oh, we hear about Shiva Star and Aurora and, uh, and, and these types of things. For, for the people who don't have a real good understanding of this, Nick, what, what really, what's the deal with the so-called black projects? I mean, how common are they? Are they uh, is, and, and how could we really know to what extent uh, they're, actually, um, uh, they're actually occurring because of the, uh, 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 of the nature of those, uh, those types of projects? Sure. Um, well, black projects are projects which are basically so secret that they literally um, do not exist in official terms. So um, typically you would get a, a, a black program covering an area of scientific breakthrough that you just don't want to acknowledge at all because merely acknowledging the fact that this breakthrough has occurred, of course, goes off and pits your enemies that um, this particular area of scientific and technical endeavor is something worth, worth pursuing, right, uh, right, particularly, right. of course, if you, the enemy, can review in Western open source literature, which, of course, um, underpins the, dem the democracies in which we live, um, uh, but uh, you, know, you can read exactly how much money is being spent <laughs> on these programs. So uh, a typical black program, for example, would be the F-117A stealth fighter, which from the kind of mid-1970s onwards, or late 1970s onwards, uh, was totally black. That means it was unacknowledged by um, open government. There were very few people within the, within the program, uh, sorry, outside the program, who were clued into it. And people within the program were so compartmentalized that if you were working on one aspect of the aircraft, for example, if you were designing the wheels of the thing, you might not either know what it was for, or you certainly wouldn't have enough details of the, pro of the project to be able to blab about the whole thing mm -hmm. if you ever felt like going out and compromising it. So in this way, black programs are maintained in terms of secrecy. And people often come to me and say, come on, defense secrets don't last for 20 years. Well, all I do is I point them to the stealth fighter program because actually what you had there was a black program that held in place at least for 10 years. Um, the first time that we ever got a glimpse of the aircraft was in, uh, in 1988 
when the outgoing Reagan administration decided to uh, release details on the project. Right. Until then, despite the fact that the airplane had been flying around in squadron service uh, around the entire southwestern United States for five years, no one had uh, snapped a picture of the thing, which I think is a remarkable testimony to uh, the efficiency of black programs. So, you know, these programs do hold in secrecy terms, and um, I'm sure, and we can go into this, you know, there are plenty of other examples which fit into that mold. Right, right, right. Yeah, speaking of the um, of the F-117A, uh, I'm reminded of the story uh, that you account, actually, in the book uh, of the crash in, uh, in Bakersfield, I want to say. Yeah, well, I mean, there were a number of occasions when stealth aircraft have crashed uh, and threatened to compromise the entire program. Now, in that particular instance, the Bakersfield crash, uh, which was uh, in 1987, I believe, um, there, um, there, that this was a particular concern because for the first time a stealth aircraft had crashed outside a secure test range. Mm. So um, even though it was at night and it wasn't a very um, sparsely populated area, this did present a logistical nightmare to the black world community. How do you go about covering up a very public, and because it did become public, crash of, uh, of, of, a, of a black airplane? Now, in this particular case, they were able to cordon off the area, cover stories were put in place, and even though people like me and other um, reporters were, uh, of course, immediately suspicious <laughs> that this was uh, the, fabled, the fabled stealth aircraft that we've heard rumors about for some time. Right. In terms of actually, you know, getting meaningful data out of that crash um, situation, it was, uh, again, it was almost impossible. You were just left speculating, which in journalistic terms isn't really much good. Mm. So, again, uh, a comprehensive system to keep these secrets in place, and uh, it invariably works. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, that's a that, that's a good little bit of background on uh, on black projects and sort of a little bit about your history. So let's talk about now, um, uh, well, about how uh, the beginning of the tale of uh, of the anti gravity research. How did this whole thing begin? Um, I know we have early on the work of guys like T. T. Brown, and there were some other interesting people that were doing stuff um, in the early 1900s, um, but how did you get involved in it? How did you get, uh, what was your first uh, sort of hook into it? And maybe we can do a little bit of that, uh, of that older historical stuff, um, uh, and then, uh, well, we've got, uh, we've got some time to talk here, so then, then we can spend, I'd like to spend some more time a little bit later in the show, of course, on the post-World War II stuff, because I think that's where the meat of it lies. Um, but, uh, again, let's do a little bit of historical stuff and how you, uh, again, uh, how you originally found out about that early stuff to begin with. So, Okay, so, what, I mean, in terms of my own kind of uh, interest in this general subject area, I mean, it, it, it was, I hope it's already kind of clear that uh, what, um, what I was interested in was this kind of whole environment. And I always felt that, <laughs> excuse me, I always felt that there was um, something out there in terms of secrecy and program, programmatic, the kind of breakthrough that, um, that was there. I just kind of felt it. You know, whenever you go out to these 
amazing places in the States in terms of the, uh, the, the companies and the facilities where this kind of – where top-secret research is going on. Right. Even though no one can actually tell you anything, you intuitively feel, if you're plugged into that environment, that there is much more <laughs> out there than meets the eye. Mm. Um, now, having said that, the, uh, the, the, the first time I really got kind of drawn into the anti-gravity story – was when I wasn't looking for it at all. I was, I was, uh, I'd never had any interest in, uh, as I said at the top of the show, in uh, anything that was so speculative from a science point of view that it bordered on the ridiculous. <laughs> but one day I was in James and uh, I walked in, walked up to my desk. It was uh, day just like any other day, and somebody had left on my desk an article, um, and the article was all about. Um, a breakthrough in the 1950s uh, in the aerospace community that had prompted a range of leading aerospace, US, uh, leading U.S. aerospace companies of the day to look into the whole question of anti-gravity. Okay, now, I read now. it first of all, and I thought, uh, let's you know dismiss this. It's really uh, it looks uh, crazy stuff. But something kind of made me just read the first couple of paragraphs. And in it, there was language that I instantly understood, which was that here were real companies, here were real program managers in those companies being quoted on uh, this quest for an anti-gravity um, breakthrough. And I thought, hang on, there's something I understand here in terms of the way I report contemporary stories, and let's see if there really is anything to it. And that's really how I got started. Okay, and that and, and now that was uh, is that where George Twimble comes into the story? Yeah, um, there was a guy uh, worked for Martin uh, Martin Aircraft, which was a a large uh, important aerospace company um, of the day, um, certainly very important in the 1950s. And George Twimble was the uh, manager of uh, special programs. Now, special programs is an interesting. Uh, title because it usually denotes that you are involved in uh, uh, secret stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, if you ever kind of follow black program uh, language, the moment you see something called a special program in uh, open literature, that is basically a cover uh, or a title that denotes that within that special program there is probably. Uh, a black program. Right, and I, and I think even we, we see that even to this day uh, in, uh, uh, in, our, in our current uh, military, industrial, governmental operations. So. Absolutely. So, you know, that was, again, that was language that I understood. Uh, I knew that George Trimble um, was involved in, if not secret stuff, then certainly uh, very cutting-edge technology. Okay. And Trimble was quoted as saying that... Um, they were, uh, that is, uh, his company and others, uh, on the cusp of a breakthrough in the whole anti-gravity field, that there had been interesting data and experiments which were, were being set up at the time to validate this work, and uh, they expected to have a breakthrough uh, within four years, four to five years, which was about, he said, the time it took to develop the, um, the first atomic bomb. Now, so now, what hey, they were looking for hey, Nick, what, was uh, investment. What, what time frame was this again? This is 1950... 56. 56, okay. 
So we're talking 50, 50 years ago. when Quim, uh, Trimble was quoted, yeah. Right, okay. Um, and so, again, you know, here was language that I very much understood, uh, and even though it was talking about something that was very out there in technological and scientific terms, the, the language that these program managers were using, and it wasn't just Trimble, but there were many others, okay. made me curious, at the very least, and I decided to, in my spare time, go out there and do a little digging, which is, you know, as I said, how I go into the whole subject area. Right, right, right. Okay. All right. So when you start doing that, what happens? Uh, what happened? Well, I suppose like in um, any uh, good thriller, you kind of dig away for a bit. You, uh, you, you get some interesting leads, but predominantly what you're turning up are false leads. You're going down blind alleys. And I was actually pretty much on the point of giving up because although there had been, it was clear, a very kind of um, rich tapestry of, of, of uh, endeavor in the late 1950s in this field and certainly a lot of excitement amongst aerospace companies that this might be the next breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really getting anywhere. Uh, and then uh, I had set up uh, with Lockheed Martin um, the inherit inheritor company of the Martin Aircraft Company. Right, right. Uh, a an opportunity to go and do an interview with George Trimble, mm-hmm. who by now was well retired, um, and had originally agreed to talk to me about these pronouncements uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, but at the very last minute, just literally as I was about to um, kind of board the plane, more or less, um, Trimble. I was contacted by Lockheed Martin, and they said that Trimble didn't want to do the interview anymore. Mm. And furthermore, that he he sounded rattled. Mm. Now, of course, this might just be an old man who didn't want to kind of uh, expose himself years into his retirement into the kind of awkward probing questions of a of, of a journalist. But at that point, the the sort of the, the way it had suddenly about faced like that just made me kind of all the more curious, and I decided then to go into a much deeper um, investigative dig into this whole question. And then that took me into areas like Thomas Townsend Brown, who was uh, a pioneer in the 1930s, and uh, into the whole kind of World War II um, history of anti-gravity technology. Right, and that's where it gets real interesting, too. That's where things get interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, well, was, I tell you, I, I tell you what, Nick. Uh, I tell you what. Let's uh, let's take a short break here, and we'll come back and uh, and let's do that. Let's start talking a little bit uh, about what's going about what was going on um, in Europe uh, and uh, and in America prior to World War II, and then we'll get into uh, uh, into the stuff that was happening um, uh, that we know was going down in Germany now. So, all right. Great. Sounds good. Okay, we'll be back in just a minute. Uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. My guest is... Hey, Nick, uh, by the way, um, uh, my guest is Nick Cook, uh, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point and uh, the former aviation uh, editor at Jane's Defense Weekly. But, Nick, I want to give people the information on how to get the book. Um, uh, is there anything in particular that you'd like me, uh, like me to say or you can give out uh, either an 800 number or maybe just Amazon or whatever? 
Well, I mean, Amazon, I think, is the best um, place to get it. Um, there are two, two uh, editions of the book. There's the UK edition and the American edition. Um, obviously, the American edition is the one to go for. Apart from anything else, it's got a, a very comprehensive index, which the UK edition doesn't have. Okay. So you can get it from Amazon. Uh, I think it's the best place. They get lots of reviews on there. It briefly topped the charts um, at number one on the Amazon bestseller charts, so they're more than familiar with it. All right, great. Uh, so go to Amazon.com uh, and uh, check out The Hunt for Zero Point by Nick Cook. And also, anybody who calls me during this next break, uh, I'll give you a copy of that book as well um, if you uh, uh, pledge your support to KOPN and to Radio Orbit. Okay, Nick, if you like uh, rock and roll music, stick around. This is a band called the Foo Fighters. and uh, uh, Very appropriate. Yeah, well, I'm trying to, do, uh, uh, trying to stick with that theme tonight. So we'll be back in just a moment with Nick Cook. In the meantime, uh, Foo Fighters on KOPN Radio Orbit. Back in a moment.
All right, that's February Stars from the Foo Fighters, a fitting band to have on the program tonight uh, for our guest, Mr. Nick Cook, wonderful uh, gentleman who's taken the time out of his busy schedule to talk to us here on Radio Orbit about aerospace technology and exotic propulsion and energy and anti-gravity and all kinds of interesting things. And um, Nick is still on the line with us here. And uh, uh, we're talking about, uh, before uh, Nick, before we took the break there, we were talking about uh, uh, just getting into the pre-World War II days and what was going on then. Um, maybe we should continue along that line for just a minute. Sure. Um, well, just uh, prior to World War II, a, uh, a guy called Thomas Townsend Brown entered the, um, entered the equation. Brown came up with a paper in uh, 1929 called How I Control Gravitation. Okay. And he found a way of basically getting um, an object to levitate, a, a capacitor. If you charge it positively on the uh, – imagine it like a disc-shaped plate. If you charge it positively on the upper side and negatively on the other – he found that it would rise in the direction of the positive charge. Hmm, okay. Now, uh, this looks, you know, in the in the 1930s, uh, pretty freaky stuff because it was, uh, you know, literally disc-shaped objects flying around with no apparent um, propulsion source. Hmm. But um, but but uh, Brown, um, unfortunately, kind of became a discredited figure. Uh, later on in his life, because he was associated with the Philadelphia experiment. And that was, as I was doing my digging, I kind of came up against this uh, aspect of his career. Even though he was a guy, again, who'd been working for the U.S. Navy, he uh, had been doing a lot of interesting things to do with radar. He'd been doing a lot of interesting things to do with anti-mining technology during the Second World War. But, you know, lo and behold, I, I groaned inwardly, why did this guy have to be associated with the Philadelphia experiment? Right, it's right, just, you know, right, kind right. Of legendary in terms of urban myth. Sure, and a pretty interesting uh, section of the book actually uh, that's devoted to that. And uh, it turns out it's uh, at least your the conclusion that you come to uh, with regard to T.T. Uh, Brown and his relation to, uh, relationship to the Philadelphia experiment um, is an interesting conclusion. Uh, and uh, maybe you can go there. Well. Yeah, I mean, the Hunt for Zero Point really, it, it, it is like a kind of detective story, and you do get uh, kind of diverted off the main path sometimes into some quite interesting sidelines. And the Philadelphia experiment was actually an interesting sideline because I realized that there was something here, like in any good uh, disinformation story, there is an element of truth in, in it. And it seems pretty likely that something, some kind of experiment took place which gave rise to the Philadelphia Experiment story in 1943. Okay. And I'm sure, you know, perhaps people don't know what the story is, but basically uh, in 1943, supposedly, a ship, uh, a U.S. Navy destroyer, was made to disappear from its berth um, in, uh, in, in Philadelphia and reappear uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. In Norfolk, and, of course, it just sounds loony, crazy stuff. But actually, when I dug into it, I found out that what had been going on at the time was an experiment to look at radar stealth for ships, uh, to try and cloak a ship in a shield of invisibility from German radar. Now, of course, in the time, at the time, 
that would have been an incredibly secret proposition right. and something really worth covering up. So, you know, it, one has to sift all of these stories for the disinformation angle and try and get down to a core truth. But getting back to Thomas Townsend Brown, Brown was involved in those radar stealth experiments uh, with the, with, in Philadelphia. And, um, and he later went on to propose a very comprehensive um, test program that would have resulted in what he called an anti-gravity craft. Okay. Now, there is kind of, there is, there is some controversy now over whether what Brown discovered was a true anti-gravity effect. And in fact, what people tend to believe nowadays, and I kind of support the view, is that <clears throat> it was more about um, an iron, so-called iron wind effect, which is that the charging of this capacitor is creating ripples in the air around the craft, mm -hmm. and it is those ripples of air which is causing the craft to levitate. But there is still a kind of, the jury's still kind of out, it's not definitive, but Brown certainly was a very interesting figure in the early history of anti-gravity. Okay. Okay, so after that, we get into, uh, well, we just played the band, the Foo Fighters, so we had, uh, let, let's, jump to, uh, let's jump to World War II and some of the uh, interesting reports that we were getting from Allied fighter pilots uh, about interesting things that they were seeing in the skies uh, in Germany and, uh, and in Europe. Absolutely. Well, now bear in mind here that you know, what I was very loath to do, certainly at the outset, was to find myself uh, merging into the whole kind of UFO lore and mythology. Right. But what I was, what I was unaware of uh, when I started out investigating the whole kind of anti-gravity story was the degree to which pilots during the Second World War, particularly over Germany in the latter stages of the war, had been reporting seeing strange lights in the sky, objects they couldn't kind of correlate with the known state of aviation uh, in the day. And, a, and, and coupling that, both that sightings um, kind of uh, history with what the Germans were doing technologically at the time and was there therefore I wondered uh, a coupling between what uh, was what appeared to be going on in Germany in terms of the development of some highly unusual aircraft um, disc shaped circular shaped aircraft um, things that we we would brand flying saucers today could you correlate that with the sightings at the time, bearing in mind that there is just as much um, mythology surrounding what the Germans were supposedly doing in terms of building flying saucers, disc-shaped disc craft in the Second World War. Um, and the whole thing kind of made me kind of very leery. But I did find that there was some very solid new archive evidence, a lot of it in America actually, which underpinned uh, the possibility that the Germans were working on those craft, okay. and that for whatever reason, um, that whole science, that whole aerospace science, has just been airbrushed out of hmm. aviation history. Right. And that really was actually the very fascinating line of inquiry for me, this whole Second World War angle, because it opened up to me a whole new um, knowledge base 
that I just had absolutely no conception about. Uh, the fact that actually in Germany at the time, it wasn't so much the Air Force, the German Air Force, which was pursuing high-end, highly secret breakthrough-type technology. It was actually the SS, of course, um, forever and indelibly and rightly associated with the crimes of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. But because of those crimes, people had been very reluctant to look into what the SS were up to technologically. And that kind of got me into a, a dark but very interesting aspect of the book. Absolutely, Nick. And I think that we should, uh, we should talk about that a little bit. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, for those uh, folks out there listening, what we're going to be talking about pretty soon is something that was called Operation Paperclip. Uh, in fact, it was called Overcast, if I remember correctly, uh, prior to... Uh, uh, prior to Paperclip. But in any case, uh, Nick, some of my uh, listeners are familiar with, with Paperclip as well, but from a different angle. Um, I have, uh, I kind of did the same thing as you. I, when I found out uh, uh, about some of the stuff that had happened right at the end of the war um, with the recruiting and repatriation of some of the German uh, scientists and things, uh, I was amazed by it as well, but my angle was uh, I was interested on the medical side of it. I was interested in what was going on um, with uh, the physicians and uh, psychiatrists uh, that they had brought over here and what uh, what those particular folks were doing, which is an, which is an incredible story in and of itself. But uh, but paperclip was uh, was an amazing thing. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a fascinating period in history, a fascinating period in American history, um, and not. Universally known, but um, yeah, we can go into that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. So, well, uh, of course, Paperclip and, as you rightly point out, um, Project Overcast before it uh, were recruitment drives by America to get um, high-value Nazi scientists into the states without causing uh, repercussions in terms of yeah, their, their their background and history. A lot of these uh, scientists, not all by any means, but a lot of them were paid-up members of the Nazi Party, and uh, as uh, that was a clearly a criminal outlawed organization, inventive ways had to be found to get scientists into the United States without um, arousing uh, a furor. Right. So uh, these scientists were um, were brought in. Uh, uh, interestingly, paper clips were attached to their files, uh, to the files of the ones that the United States wanted to, wanted to recruit, hence the name. <laughs> and they went into fields like the V2 and the V1 uh, and brought that technology over to the United States, um, prompting, of course, America's lead in the, uh, in the space program. Right, right. Um, so, uh, so, that, so that was kind of the, really the genesis of, uh, of the paperclip project. Right, and a lot of those guys, uh, uh, Werner von Braun uh, in, in particular, but uh, uh, the German uh, aerospace scientists were primarily responsible for the American rocket program. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it, 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 it really is uh, their contribution in scientific terms was enormous. Uh, Werner von Braun, of course, is the best known, uh, and... But, you know, it is, it is highly debatable whether America could have stolen the lead that it did against the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. who also, by the way, had right. German scientists on their side, right, right. Uh, without the assistance of those scientists. Okay. Hey, uh, Nick, I wanted to ask you something. In, in your, uh, 
in your research, did you ever run across a guy, a German, uh, who was involved with the rocket program there, whose name was Willie Lay? Who was yeah, I'm familiar with the name, um, certainly. Uh, I couldn't tell you uh, in any great depth uh, what his contribution was, okay. but I certainly came across that name. Okay, no problem. I, 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 I just, he uh, came up on my radar, and I just wanted to ask you about it. So, um, Okay, let's t- talk uh, a little bit about... Um, Okay, we talked about paperclip, uh, paperclip, and we'll probably get back to that uh, because it becomes very relevant uh, once we talk about some of these technologies and exotic programs uh, that that were being developed in Germany. And I think it's important to to talk about the, um, uh, you know, we were talking about black projects very early on. It's one of the first things we talked about, and you mentioned that uh, the SS was primarily uh, in control of these. Uh, exotic technology uh, research programs, and that it really wasn't the Wehrmacht or the uh, uh, or the uh, uh, the government particularly that was in charge of these things. It looks like Himmler at some point uh, grabbed control of the stuff with uh, with the help of another gentleman who turns out to be a real major figure in this story. But um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that special project because it sounds like to me that that was. Uh, a nice model uh, for black projects today, and maybe um, uh, uh, maybe this is uh, the basis for the future uh, black projects that we saw, like you said, in the stealth and maybe some other things that are going on. Well, one of the kind of pivotal moments in my researching of what was happening in Germany during the Second World War was the discovery of um, this uh, SS... Um, effort to basically co-opt German industry, certainly in terms of highly secret um, breakthrough kind of work. And there was a figure, um, uh, a deeply unpleasant um, but kind of uh, driven bureaucrat uh, by the name of SS General Hans Kammler, who not only was um, an architect literally an architect of the Holocaust, in that he drew up plans for uh, the concentration camps and the gas chambers. This guy wasn't a technologist, per se. He was an administrator, one of those kind of faceless bureaucrats Mm -hmm. that literally um, populated great swathes of Nazi Germany at that time. But he was co-opted to the technology program by uh, Hitler and Himmler because he'd shown great um, drive in his other uh, uh, work associated with the Holocaust, and so was transferred to the technology program in order to get it to work. And basically, what he did was he established an an empire within an empire based on high technology across a vast swathe of uh, the German countryside. And... Uh, he uh, was responsible, for example, for productionizing the V2 um, and for launching the V2 um, in the last stages of the war. He also assumed control of all the high-technology programs on the aerospace side, like missiles, surface-to-air missiles, uh, jet aircraft, and the like. But it was the establishment by Kamler of a secret research cell in a place called um, uh, the Skoda Works, in Pilsen in Czechoslovakia Mm -hmm. that was a real breakthrough because this actually was the forerunner of of, of a kind of black program architecture 
where you have a special pro uh, programmed group looking at breakthrough technologies, deciding where to invest in those technologies in order to get rapid breakthroughs, which in 1943, when this organization was set up, was a priority for Germany because they already knew that they were losing the war. Right, and right. They needed something right. huge to get them back into the game against the Allies. So Kamala was this pivotal figure, and I followed him uh, as a major lead in the story because I knew that um, shedding light on this guy, who is deeply mysterious, if you look up in any kind of major work on on, on the world on World War Two and, and 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 the Nazi uh, period, Kamala uh, barely rates to mention, but he is this uh, most influential figure. Um, dark and uh, a deeply unpleasant uh, individual at the same time, but a fascinating one. Well, you know, it's amazing, actually, that you mentioned that uh, the reference to Hans Kemmler uh, uh, in the historical literature is virtually non-existent, and I think that that in and of itself uh, is an indicator of sorts, <laughs> and um, uh, I think that you were, you were, you were wise to, to follow that trail, Nick, so... Well, you know, one of the interesting things, again, for me, was when I started looking for information on Kamala in, in the U.S. National Archives. Um, actually, one of the archivists there who knows about this period said that she was amazed that there was no information on Kamala when there should have been. Right. In her estimation, redlined him. In other words, somebody had been in and cleared up uh, data on Kamala because they didn't want people uh, digging into him. And it's also interesting, I think, that at the Nuremberg um, war crimes trials at the end, um, in the post-war period, that unlike other high-ranking Nazis who were tried in absentia, because it should be pointed out that Kamala completely disappeared off the face of the earth right, in right, the right. war, uh, he, was, um, he was not tried in absentia, which, again, points to me that somebody somewhere did a deal with him mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to, to have what he knew about, which was high technology. All right. Um, hey, is this a good time to uh, to ask about um, about Tom Agustin? Yeah. Well, Tom Agustin was uh, somebody I admire admire deeply. He um, he wrote a book uh, about Kamala. In fact, it was the only work that I'd, I'd come across at the time on Kamala, um, and it was called Blunder: um, How America Gave Away Super Secrets to the Soviet Union. Now, actually, I disagreed with Agustin's overall conclusion that mm -hmm. basically it was the Soviet Union that had acquired Kamler's secrets. Right. But what he did show was that Kamler, uh, A, knew about all this high breakthrough technology. <clears throat> he was looking at uh, follow-on weapons to the V-2 uh, system, including nuclear propulsion for aircraft, uh, directed energy weapons, um, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the like of which we're only really getting into today. Right. And in my digging, I found out that what Kamala was also funding was um, anti-gravity type technology. Now, uh, we probably need you know, a good couple of minutes to get into uh, some of the programs that the SS were backing in the anti-gravity field at the time. But uh, Kamala, as Agustin exposed, disappeared at, at the end of the war, having said that he was going to do a deal uh, for his life with the Americans in exchange for what he knew, which was this uh, panoply, uh, literally a, a, a vast kind of um, repository of, of 
all Germany's high-technology secrets. So, you know, that's a pretty powerful bargaining chip right, if you right. want to save your own skin. And uh, the mere fact that there is no uh, information on camera in U.S. archives tells me, at least, uh, and others, that he in all probability did this deal and had himself literally airbrushed out of history. Right, and it, and, and it appears that he was in the position to be able to pull off something like that. In other words, he had control uh, of Skoda Works. Um, he had control of Risa. Is that, uh, uh, is, would, would, is that a fair statement, that he was also in charge of what was going on there at Risa? Yes, Risa was a, a, a very large um, uh, secret weapons complex in right. southern Poland, um, part of Germany during the time. And it was there. I mean, that was, again, a fascinating uh, journey for me, was to travel to southern Poland to see a, uh, a, 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 an establishment. You can still see it today, I mean, mm-hmm. the remnants of it, which was a uh, top-secret SS research center where some very strange things were going on. Um, uh, an experiment which I describe in the book called The Bell. The Bell. Um, which basically uh, was a German attempt to manipulate space-time. Uh, for what reason, it is, it is unclear. Of course, if you can do that, you may um, yield uh, an anti-gravity effect, but also you could, uh, if you go off in a different direction, come up with a, an extremely powerful bomb and um, mm-hmm. I think it was, in evaluating it now, I see it very much as a, an experiment that was looking at raw data, uh, trying to, to, to see uh, an investigation of space-time, seeing what you could do with it, um, and whether, for example, um, you could manipulate, uh, you could come up with a bomb uh, that would use the manipulation of space-time in terms of tearing a kind of fabric in the whole of space-time to engender a, a fearsome but different kind of weapon of mass destruction. Great. That sounds really fantastic. <laughs> My gosh, and this was going on 50 years ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's the scary thing. Um, and you know, to me, too, it, 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 it showed that Germany was looking in an area of science that really the rest of the world had ignored um, and there are many, um, of course, reasons for that, um, not the least of which was America uh, went down the, uh, the, kind of the, the atomic, um, uh, the, the, the atom route, right, right. Uh, in many ways because of the endeavors of uh, a large number of Jewish scientists who emigrated from Germany into the States um, before the Second World War. Right. And that whole area of, uh, of sort of Einsteinian-type um, general relativity physics was really ignored by the Germans, and they were looking at other aspects. You know, I mean, uh, quantum mechanics, uh, perhaps for them, was a more um, promising uh, area of endeavor. Right, right. And, and they came to conclusions that the rest of the world, you know, really wasn't uh, prepared to, to come to at the time. Well, you know, uh, and that, I think, is... Uh, uh, a very important point because I think that what you just pointed out is that the scientific paradigm that the scientists were working in were different. Uh, in other words, that um, as you say, we, we had relativists that were here, 
working on their particular projects, the atom bomb with the Manhattan Project, again, which was a, was a, a black project that, of course, was pretty unsuccessful. Uh, uh, that, that information got out pretty quickly. But in any case, um, the, the idea of these different scientific paradigms um, and taboos, for example, in relativism, even to this day, there are certain things that, uh, you know, if you want to investigate cold fusion, for example, uh, that is immediately debunked, uh, just the way anti-gravity may have been uh, not that long ago. Anti-gravity seems to be getting some, uh, some traction right now, uh, because uh, a lot of because of uh, the work that you've done. Um, but, but, but I do think that it's really interesting to point out that these scientific paradigms are different. And literally when that happens, the guys go into it with a different mindset. And, and, and if I've learned anything, um, if anything is to be possible, you first have to believe that it's possible and have that thought. And if you never go there, well, then you'll never get to that, uh, you'll never get to that technology. Absolutely. But you're so right about those paradigms. You know, they're, they're set up as these kind of enormous kind of edifices that you just can't ever chip away at, let alone knock down. And certainly, you know, in terms of, um, of, of our scientific knowledge, no one's talking about knocking that knowledge down. All we're saying is there are holes in our knowledge. You know, there are holes in scientific knowledge right now that we, um, in, in years to come, will progressively fill. Right, right. But right now, why should we know everything? Well, you um, know, Nick, I, 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 let me just add this. Uh, I was talking about this at the beginning of the program before you, uh, I'm not sure if you were listening, you may have been uh, on the line, but, you know, you make an, another wonderful point. I mean, where is it written that, that human beings, uh, that us advanced apes, us talking monkeys, are, are supposed to be able to give a full and complete account of the universe and how it functions. Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, that's kind of the, certainly the big picture. And we're discovering things all the time about right. the universe that right. we, uh, that, that, that we uh, previously had no inkling of. You know, the discovery uh, five years ago of uh, dark matter. Right. You know, which constitutes an enormous part of the universe. <laughs> right. And yet, previously, it was unknown. And, it, and it's kind of just a side note, almost, you know? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. So, and yet, the discovery of uh, something like dark matter completely overturns our knowledge of who we are and where we are right. and our place yeah. in the universe. Right. Uh, and we have to get to grips with that. And on a much smaller scale... Really, I'm saying the same thing about anti-gravity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't poo-poo this stuff um, just because you don't know about it. Um, I had to fight like mad against my own skepticism when I went into this subject. But what I followed was data. I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, I paid attention to theory, but I didn't necessarily follow theory. I followed real clues in terms of available data. Right. And that really helped me um, put together the pieces of the jigsaw, which in the end came together in the story of the Hunt to Zero Point. Incredible. All right, listen, that's a good place to take another break here. Um, 
Incredible. All right, we'll be back. Uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Nick Cook. And you know, Nick, let's add that uh, this wasn't a short. Uh, this wasn't a short project. You worked for some ten years, traveling all around the world. I know you made numerous trips to the states. You were in Poland, in Germany, all over the place. And this was quite, uh, uh, qu- quite the quite the adventure that you went on. Well, I hope what people would get a sense of when they pick up and read the book is that it's not just a science story. It's, mm. it's an adventure story. Yeah, and I tell really it very is. much in the third person because it, really it is. is kind of a bit like a thriller. It's a detective story. Is he going to get there or not? But it really was like that at the time. And, you know, it was just, it was a 10-year journey. You're right. But it was, uh, it was a blast. You know, I just had a fantastic time while I was doing it. All right. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic book. And again, uh, uh, with, uh, loaded with incredible, verifiable, valid, important information uh so anyway we'll be back with nick in just a few minutes you're listening to radio orbit this is mike hagan as always on uh, the 30th of january 2005 uh, it's 4 a.m and this is kopn 89.5 fm mid-missouri source for in-depth news diverse talk music of the world it's more than radio it's community radio and it's your imagination station and this is where you get it right here radio orbit back in a minute this is the tragically hip with silver jet Well, really? 
Okay. You're back live here on Radio Orbit. It's Mike Hagan, and it's uh, about six minutes after four in the morning, and we're lucky enough to be spending some time tonight with Nick Cook. Nick is the former aviation editor of Jane's Defense Weekly, the preeminent aerospace technology journal on this planet, or one of them at least. Uh, he's also the author of an incredible book that we've been talking about called The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, uh, Nick is on the phone live from London right now, and uh, let's get back to him. Hey, Nick. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What's going on in London these days, by the way? How are things uh, across the pond over there? Well, uh, they're fine, but you know anyone who's ever been here will know that uh, we don't enjoy the greatest of weather, <laughs> um, so it's uh, pretty damp and miserable at the moment. But um, anyway, we're sort of uh, easing gently into springtime, so uh, it's kind of around the corner. We're, so we're all hanging in there. All right. Well, good. Um, yeah, the uh, the spring will be upon us here before we know it, as time seems to be moving faster and faster these days. But uh, okay, uh, before the break, we were talking about some of these exotic technologies that uh, that the Germans were working on, and, and and we were kind of describing a little bit about why they were looking at areas that the uh, that the scientists over here weren't particularly looking at, and it was sort of this different paradigm idea. But uh, regardless, uh, they were looking at some really interesting things. Um, and uh, I think this is a good time to talk about Victor Schauberger, uh, if uh, uh, if you'd like, and because he ties in uh, pretty significantly uh, to this story. Of course, um, you could talk maybe a little bit more about the bell if you want or some of this stuff, but just go where you like with it. But let's uh, continue along those lines, okay? Well, as a reporter, of course, you know, the, the kinds of trails that I, under, I understand are, are money trails. If you <laughs> follow the money, you know, invariably you get to, well, it's not the truth. You, you, you find out what's at the end of that money trail, certainly in terms of technology. And as I followed the money trail from Kamler, who headed up this German SS-run research program, right. followed one of these trails down, I ended up at Victor Schauberger. Now, Victor Schauberger was an Austrian inventor who had come up with a kind of, basically a form of turbine, which uh, instead of uh, radiating the flow of air outwards, he was radiating the flow of air inwards into a process he called implosion, um, which uh, in this implosion state, it is, uh, it's a state at which kind of the potential for um, work is enormous. Now, what I could not definitively prove is that Victor Schauberger, in experimenting uh, with his devices, had yielded uh, an anti-gravity effect. What I could definitively prove is that that was what he was setting out to do, mm -hmm. and the Germans, who are, of course, no slouch uh, when it comes to engineering technology, believed in him sufficiently at an administrative level to give him pots of money to go off and do what uh, he said he could do. Right. So from that point of view, you know, there was a clear kind of monetary trail um, linking experimental work with uh, the big picture, which was to come up with breakthrough technologies and weapons. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you touched on the story of the bell in southern Poland. Uh, I mean, the bell is really an extraordinary story. Uh, it was brought to me by a Polish researcher, a guy called Igor Witkowski, who's done a tremendous amount of work on um, this 
that particular program. And it yeah, really yeah. involved uh, an experiment down a mine uh, with uh, a device that spun um, uh, containers of what appeared to be mercury in two in a, in a counter uh, rotational direction. Mm-hmm. And this yielded the most kind of bizarre um, uh, effects in terms of, uh, you know, you had um, uh, electrical um, machinery and components cutting out within the vicinity of this, um, uh, of this object as it was being spun up into this state. Uh, you had uh, apparent transformation of cellular structure. You know, there was um, plants and uh, insects and small animals were put in the vicinity of this experiment. And it, it gave off this kind of bizarre ionization-type glow. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these are kind of pointers to um, some strange anti-gravitational effects. And as I said, where they were taking this research is not known. Personally, I think that they were looking for uh, a bomb breakthrough. And certainly some of the supporting uh, formerly secret um, archive literature and correspondence surrounding this program makes it clear that they were looking for what the German translation, I mean, the the translation from the German is war-winning technology. Mm -hmm. And I can only see that in 1944-45, war-winning technology would be in the form of a bomb. Right, and and we can speculate that it would probably have to be something pretty spectacular uh, because uh, at that point... During the war, the Germans were in deep, deep trouble. Uh, the writing was on the wall that unless something uh, that, that could really change the tide uh, was developed and implemented really quickly, uh, that, they were, that they were done. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine that if you are playing around with nature, with a capital N, mm-hmm. um, to such a degree that you potentially are, are able to tear a hole in the fabric of space and time, I mean, God only knows what comes through that hole. Um, And, you know, we know from certain pronouncements by the German high command that they were worried about uh, atom bomb research on that level. You know, would it initiate a chain reaction that in some way would wipe out the Earth and, you know, the near side of the cosmos? Right, right. So, you know, their ambitions in that field uh, terrifyingly, are already well known. So I don't see it as beyond the bounds of possibility at all that this was something that they were looking at. Okay. Uh, and it's quite a chilling prospect. Yeah, no, no question about it. You know, I want to add one other thing, too, um, that I think is uh, important. You mentioned uh, that the work that was done on the Bell was in an underground uh, facility, and um, I think we should mention real quick the extent of that because it also gives us a little peek behind the curtain of probably what's going on today. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we talked a couple of days ago that um, uh, I, I actually lived in Bavaria for uh, an extended amount of time. I it was sort of in another lifetime of mine, but I, I was working for a department of, for the U.S. Department of Defense at the time, and this was in in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, right about the time that the that the wall was coming down and everything was changing. And uh, I had the opportunity to live at a place called Berchtesgaden, which is uh, uh, in Bavaria, in the Bavarian Alps, and a wonderfully incredible place, actually, but also sort of a uh, uh, sort of the 
one of the favorite spots for uh, for Hitler and his uh, and his gang uh, to hang out at. And and there are mines and underground caverns and tunnels uh, that I was in myself personally. I didn't realize what was going on at the time. I was there. Uh, I was down there messing around, just sort of for grins. We would go into this mountain. Um, uh, that that had been carved out, some naturally and some uh, by human hands, and uh, the extent of which was astounding. And I, I only explored a, a small part of it, uh, but rumor was that it went all over uh, southern Bavaria and over into Austria. Uh, Salzburg was just right across the border there, and um, and we know that some of this work that you're talking about at uh, uh, at Riesa in particular, and probably many other places, there were. Immense underground uh, facilities that were built literally into these mountains, and uh, and Kemmler, I think, again was a big part of that. But but uh, t- tell me a little bit more about that, Nick, if you don't mind. And I apologize for taking so much time there. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, Germany is uh, littered today with those underground facilities because, again, it was uh, in the 1943 time frame that um, the Allied bombing offensive was really kind of uh, making its impact on uh, German infrastructure at the time, destroying not only towns and cities, but also, of course, the German industrial war effort. Right, right. And it was, you know, it was Kamala, amongst others, who pointed out that if you moved your factories underground, they would be impregnable from Allied bombing. And so literally in the space of two years, a, a quite considerable uh, proportion of German industry was moved underground by um, after these facilities, some of which are huge. And, you know, I'm, I know like you, I've been into some of these facilities. They spread, they stretch for, you know, dozens of kilometers underground. Right. And many of them are still visible today. Uh, and at the end of the war, I think uh, from U.S. Uh, uh, kind of archival data, we know that uh, there were 143 underground factories by the end of the war, but many hundreds more were on the point of completion. And as the, uh, the observer who wrote this particular U.S. intelligence report said, you know, it is, uh, it is chilling to think what might have happened had Germany initiated its underground factory program a little earlier on, or maybe even before the war, you know, then perhaps victory wouldn't have been quite as easy to achieve for uh, Britain and America um, as uh, you know as, as it was. So you know that's quite a quite a thought, really. Uh, and certainly, a lot of this high technology secret end work that we're talking about was put into these underground facilities. Okay. All right, and that's where, uh, again, um, maybe we can bring uh, Schauberger back into it and uh, sort of uh, um, finish the line with him and where, 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 where that whole thing went. Well, what was interesting about Schauberger was that he uh, was um, debriefed by U.S. intelligence at the end of the war uh, for a long time, actually for about nine months. In a very sort of uh, sad story, too. Too, you know, I mean, the story of Victor Schauberger is sort of a heartbreaking story. It, you know, it is. I mean, it is. A, it is a sad story. I, 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 to get his story out, I became quite close to his family. Um, his his grandson, who still lived in the house that Victor did much of his work in, right, right. Um, uh, was able to 
relay how, you know, basically all Victor Schauberger really wanted to do was to come up with a safe, clean energy supply for the future. Right. Uh, he got co-opted into this um, German wartime program. And after the war, in fact, uh, he was kind of recruited again. Uh, this was this time in the mid-1950s by uh, a kind of uh, strange uh, consortium of individuals in America to bring his technology um, to America and see if it could be brought to fruition that way. Right. But again, Victor Schauberger felt that he was being exploited, and he died really uh, brokenhearted, um, having, he felt, had all his ideas robbed from him and unable to implement um, these devices that, uh, that, that would have, he, he felt, you know, yielded a, a safe, clean, limitless energy supply to the world. Right, right. An incredible story. And uh, uh, this is a great time to mention it again, um, Nick. The, the name of uh, Nick's book is called The Hunt for Zero Point, um, a look into the classified world of anti-gravity technology. It's available through Amazon, uh, Amazon.com and other places as well, but it's an incredible story uh, and a really well-written book as well. It's not purely technical. There's lots of technical information and evidentiary uh, uh information as well but it's also really well written nick i want to congratulate on you know, c- congratulate you on it because it's an awesome book and it's really fun to read as well but in, in the meantime there's just uh, a wealth of information included in it so it's a great book so everybody go out and buy that book it's pretty cool and uh um all right where uh where should we uh where should we continue uh nick well it may be worthwhile just taking a look at what's happening today um i mean one of the things that you know i've been immensely gratified by has been the response to the book by the community that you know I've written about as a journalist for uh, for 20 odd years and I have had people you know come up to me within the industry who've read it and said you know you're you're on the right path um, keep going the it is an evolving story it doesn't end of course um, and we kind of, uh, I know that we, we had touched upon the business of, you know, where energy is going and where, how we need a breakthrough, certainly in propulsion and energy terms, if we're going to, uh, kind of go forward and, and achieve that next kind of paradigm in terms of, um, of, of energy and propulsion. Okay. And there is, a great deal of effort, um, some of it I'm sure in secret, but much of it out in the open, to to to, to get those new breakthroughs. And, and time, the clock's ticking now. Right. You know, we 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 talk a great deal. People talk a great deal about peak oil and how that has really um, led to this um, much sooner than everyone uh, thought it would. Mm-hmm. And so we need that breakthrough to happen. It's not now something that's nice to have. It's something that we've got to have right, in the right. next 20 years. Right. And it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting situation for, for the powers that be, as it were, because um, uh, as something like you're talking about is, in my opinion, what's required in order to mitigate uh, the majority, of, quite frankly, of the problems that we're experiencing on the planet right now, it also uh, confronts things like control issues and uh and and true freedom you know if you have energy uh you can do whatever you like pretty much uh as long as you have access to uh to energy uh, and then like you say if it's renewable so th- so the potentials um 
really go beyond uh, just energy. It, it, it becomes a paradigm-shifting situation where the whole culture uh, and society will probably uh, have to go through a metamorphosis as well uh, if, uh, uh, if it's going to be done without blowing ourselves to smithereens. Yeah, very much so. And I, I do feel that we are entering that period of transition. And as with any such period, you do get immense turbulence. Right. There are the old guard, as you point out, who want to hold on to the old way of doing things. There, there's the new guard, the new wave, who want to shake things up and change things. And in the middle of it all, there are probably things that facilitate or catalyze that. Right. And certainly if you look at what's happening in the kind of the zero-point physics world, and we haven't really talked about that very much, and how zero-point physics uh, relates to the whole anti-gravity question. But in essence, what zero-point energy is, is a kind of background um, sea of uh, energy, of, of particles, um, subatomic particles flush, flashing in and out of existence relentlessly all around us. That state, that zero-point energy field has been proven to exist. That's no longer in question anymore, even right, though for right. decades it was. Right. Um, what the key question is, sorry, Mike? No, no, no. I, I, I'm agreeing oh, with sorry, you. Oh, sorry. I thought I thought you were, thought you were chipping in there. No, I'm agreeing the, with the, you. Yeah. The, the key question is is whether we can tap into this quantum sea of particle energy and produce uh, and pull useful energy from it. Now there is an emerging breed of inventors who will tell you that not only that is possible, but they are actually achieving that. And certainly since the publication of the book, I have been privy to uh, viewing a number of inventions which do appear, and I stress appear, to be pulling energy from, well, some people would call it nothing. It's right. not. It's this zero-point energy field. Right, right. But it's also possible that the zero-point energy field may actually be the, the underlying fabric of all the fundamental forces of which gravity is one and that by manipulating the zero-point energy field, you may be yielding a, uh, a counterpoint to gravity, effectively an anti-gravity effect. Right. So that's how the zero-point energy question relates to the whole anti-gravity field. And I found myself, again, uh, when I discovered this kind of zero-point energy uh, whole field of research out there, sort of momentarily diverted by it, but it did in the end, it appeared to me, at least, to be crucial to the manipulation of these fundamental forces around us that we take for granted, uh, gravity and electromagnetism being two of them. Okay. Well, um, maybe, this is a, maybe this is a time um, to mention uh, Podpletnov uh, or, or even Hal Putov. I wouldn't mind talking about Hal Putov for, uh, uh, for a moment, but, but, the, but the Russian, Evgeny uh, Podpletnov, uh, has... Uh, sort of reemerged recently. I think I read a story just a few days ago about him again. Um, how familiar are you yes, with, um, with, with, with Evgeny and his work? Well, he pops, pops up out of the woodwork from time to time. Um, he, uh, uh, Evgeny Podklatnov is a, a Russian, uh, although he lived in Finland. And in uh, the early 1990s, he, uh, he told how he had generated a, an effect which yielded a reduction in the weight of objects suspended above uh, rotating superconductors. 
uh, superconductors are materials that move their uh, electrical resistance at uh, low temperatures. And um, what Kletnov found by accident that if you uh, suspend a weight above a superconductor, which is a kind of a disk, uh, broadly the size of an old LP, so kind of like 12 inches across, and in that kind of column of uh, air above the superconductor, any object suspended in it, he found, was losing its weight by, well, initially 2%, but he's gone on to find that anything up to 9% weight reduction uh, were possible. Now, again, the precise reasons for why these weight reductions should be taking place, and by the way, um, there is controversy surrounding that because NASA has tried to replicate his experiments and has not been able to do so. And the reason is, what Kletnov says, is that only he knows the magic formula to the composition of these superconducting disks. So, you know, even this story is fraught with complication. Right. But the interesting thing is, is that Todd Kletnov is not alone in saying that superconductors are the pathway to the appearance of apparently magical things, like weight reduction happening. Mm-hmm. There are a number of other hugely credentialed scientists, some in America, some outside America, who are saying exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when three or four or more people are saying effectively the same thing, and they're all credentialed people in their own field, you know, people like me should certainly sit up and listen. Um, and uh, so the Paul Kletnov story is, is certainly a very interesting one. Right. You know, um, uh, we'll take a break here in a minute, but uh, I think I mentioned to you that, that uh, uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette was on this program um, uh, just last week. And, uh, and speaking of a credentialed guy, you know, who has some amazing uh, ideas and, and theories and, and, and verification of those behind it. Uh, he's a guy that's being uh, sort of ignored right now, but, uh, but he ties right into the stuff that you're talking about. And, and in fact, I think he's sourced uh, and cited uh, once or twice in your book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know Paul, and um, he, uh, yeah, he, he's been looking in some of the same areas that I have. And, uh, yeah, this is all frontier stuff. But, you know, I've no doubt that in the near future, what we consider, consider frontier science in some areas is going to become mainstream. It's just a matter of time. Right. I couldn't agree with you more, and uh, that's where it's going. So, okay, let's take a break. We'll come back, Nick, and we'll talk more about uh, uh, what uh, all the stuff we've been talking about for the last hour and a half. We'll, we'll sort of convert that into real time and talk about the implications of today uh, a little bit more and, um, and where, we think, uh, where we think this stuff is going, okay? Sounds good. Okay, back in a minute. Uh, we've been, we've been uh, talking to Nick Cook, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point, and uh, 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 an amazing uh, intelligence in the area of uh, aerospace and aviation technology. Uh, spent many years as the editor for Jane's Defense Weekly in the aviation uh, uh, division, and um, we're very fortunate uh, to be able to talk with Nick tonight. So we'll be back with him in just a minute. In the meantime, we've been talking a lot about Germany tonight. This is one of my favorite German bands. They're called... Fury in the Slaughterhouse, and this song is called, uh, this is called, um, what is it? I think it's called Friendly Fire. Okay, back in a moment, Radio Orbit, KOPA.
Friendly Fire, that's Fury in the Slaughterhouse from their CD Mono from 1993, I think. All right, uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagen. And uh, for the last hour and a half, we've been 
having a fantastically interesting, incredible discussion uh, with Nick Cook, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point. I'm on the line with Nick right now, and we've got about, oh, I don't know, 15 minutes or so left uh, to, uh, uh, to chat. And um, Nick, uh, let, me, let me start with this for this last sort of segment. What you've told me and what we've talked about and what I've read, in my gut now, the, my instinct tells me that if 50 years ago this stuff was going on in Germany, many of these, uh, uh, many of these very unique and interesting uh, scientists that, that had different ideas of, uh, of thought in general about the way the world works, uh, these guys were brought over here. There were some of them that were also brought over to Russia and who knows where else. And for 50 years, something has to have been going on. Now, I don't know what, um, but the odds are that these black programs, the odds are that the model that the SS made with their uh, special projects division uh, is a model that was exported and is probably in place in some way, shape, or form right now. And I just wonder what's going on. And, and, uh, and I'd like your thoughts on that, I guess, because I think there's probably some things in there that can really help us, like we're talking about uh, uh, before the break. Well, of course, that's a, it's one of the $64,000 questions, is, is all of the stuff that we have talked about, um, has it been exploited? Have these breakthroughs been exploited um, in terms of technology, hushed up, buried away somewhere, um, are operated by the um, black world, by the classified environment in some shape, way, or form, um, not in terms of production vehicles. I mean, that's just not the way the black world works. Um, you would, though, perhaps, if you felt that you'd had a breakthrough uh, and you could hush it up, you might want to work away on it in secret, in the black, uh, out in remote places, and you know, experiment to a point where you feel happy with the technology and, uh, and refine it. Uh, and then at a suitable moment, then perhaps productionize it in terms of um, weaponry and hardware. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's no necessity, or there has been no necessity, if you look at this through the military's eyes, to, uh, to do that. If you had achieved a breakthrough in this field, uh, why would you want to wheel it out? Why would you want to alert the rest of the world that there had been a breakthrough in this field? Right. I mean, you can imagine, perhaps, uh, what might have happened to the atomic bomb had President Truman decided not to uh, not to, to use it on the Japanese at the end of the war? It, it's entirely conceivable that as a secret, it might have held for decades, decades more to come. Right. But the moment you know something's out there, you strive to want to uh, to have it yourself. And more to the point, when you see something, you know it's achievable, even if previously. All your senses told you that what you were trying to achieve was impossible. Right, right. So I think um, we're, we're on the cusp of change here. It may be that there is this secret technology out there somewhere in the black, but what's clearly happening in this new environment is um, a catch-up by the white world, a catch-up by right. people out there working on this stuff in the open. I agree with um, you. Who are coming to grips with all this old knowledge, much of which uh, extends far back in time to you know, the, the time of the, uh, the early electrical 
engineers and pioneers at the end of the uh, of the 19th century. Right. You know, I was going to ask you one of the things that I was going to ask you along the way. Did you run across Nikola Tesla? And uh, you know, he had some ideas about electricity and gravitation and the relationship between them two. And I thought he was a pretty uh, important and interesting uh, subject in and of himself. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I do touch upon the works of Tesla in the book, but it's it's a it's a it's a short chapter, if you like, only because I felt that so many other people had really done such good work on him and right. done justice to to his story that I I couldn't really kind of take it on anywhere. But he is integral to all of this. There's no question. Right. And uh, you know, a lot of his ideas, uh, as we know, are kind of resurfacing. And um, you know, Tesla was a genius when it came to things like, for example, the transmission of um, of energy. Um, uh, you know, ac- across um, uh, across across the air, across the atmosphere, through the earth, even. Right. Um, Tesla knew about these things. He had an intuitive sense about nature's fundamental forces that hasn't that that, that not many people, not many electrical engineers, not many scientists are lucky enough to have. Right. He did have that sort of great intuitive feel for the, for his subject matter, right. and it clearly came through in his work. You know, and uh, I think that you, I think you just touched on something really important too. You mentioned that he had a connection to the forces of nature, an intuitive understanding of the forces of nature, and I think that's where a lot of this is leading. We're 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 starting to learn that um, the natural world uh, isn't exactly what we thought it was. And uh, 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 Schauberger was uh, was peeking behind that curtain with uh, curtain with his sort of vortex uh, technology and. Uh, um, but we're seeing that uh, that whole idea of the vortex. There's really something to that, uh, and it's sort of a pump or something. But uh, it certainly uh, it, it certainly appears uh, to um, to bend that so that so-called uh, inviolate second law of therm- thermodynamics. Well, absolutely. I, I I do think that as we are having to face up to some fairly stark realities, one of which is, you know, we are now, we can see the end of the oil era in sight, because as a resource, it is about to peak in terms of its availability. Therefore, um, oil as a resource is going to become much, much more expensive, even though there is still a relatively abundant supply left. But when you take into consideration, for example, the emergence of economies like China and India, and as those countries acquire great wealth, they are going to go through the same period of massive industrialization that we have gone through, and of course they have huge populations to service as well. What is going to happen when every uh, individual in China has a car? What's going to happen in India when every individual has a car? You know, peak oil is, is rapidly rushing towards us, and what this is forcing us to do is to uh, look for solutions in places that we haven't hitherto looked for them. And it may just be that the natural world is the place where those solutions lie. And I think that that's pretty exciting because actually um, what we have to draw on here is a heritage of 100-plus years of kind of forbidden knowledge or at least knowledge that's been overlooked by mainstream science to see whether it it can yield these breakthroughs that we're, we're looking for. And certainly in the aerospace world that I report on, you know, I'm talking to 
not just engineered within giant corporations now, but sometimes even people very close to the tops of those corporations who are saying that aerospace is stagnating. We have got to the point where we are now building the last ever manned fighter aircraft. There won't be a manned fighter aircraft after the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Right. Um, and thereafter, it's going to be unmanned programs. But in propulsion terms, you know, the jet engine has been with us now for 60-plus years, and it hasn't changed much. Right. We get more efficiencies out of it, but we, don't, we get fundamentally the same power source. What we need is a breakthrough. And there may just be clues in everything we've been talking about tonight to suggest that that breakthrough is close at hand and can be exploited and take us into, hopefully, a golden age of, 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 of endeavor. You know, uh, that's a great thought, and I'd, I'd really like to see that happen, Nick. You know, you, you, you said something uh, just a moment ago that, uh, that, that, that also sparked something in me. You, you said that... Uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, the technology coming out of the closet, that when that when when people see it, they want it, uh, or and they also realize it's possible. Well, that if you extend that metaphor into the realms of society and culture and things, the same thing is happening around the world. Like you say, for example, in China and in uh, in Asia in general, and in um, uh, in Africa and all around the world, because of the level of communication now, because of the things like the internet and the uh, and and just the, the 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 media dense environment in which the whole world is now living, people see uh, these things and they want them. Cars, for example, and so I think my opinion is that the only solution is we either have to deliver uh, a way of life comparable to our own here in Western Europe and in America to all of these other people, or we have to convince them that they don't want that by, by doing it ourselves. And I just don't see that happening. I don't see that happening. So they're going to want these things. They're going to want technology and advancement. And if we don't come up with a better way uh, to, uh, to do that, well, I got to agree with you that the, the oil paradigm is, is not going to be able to pull that off. Yes, I mean, um, I think that is absolutely true. And um, But as I say, there are clues out there now in the environment and also just a greater cultural acceptance, I think, amongst all of us that, um, that, that, that science and nature do offer um, abundant uh, kind of uh, clues out there as to their untapped potential. Uh, it's just a kind of amusing, an amusing aside. I was watching, um, uh, taking my kids to The Incredibles, the movie the other day, and in the middle of that film, suddenly the, the bad guy stands up and says that the secret of his power is zero-point energy. <laughs> and I thought, well, for zero-point physics to enter the mainstream of ideas in such a way, right. I mean, that was just a kind of, just a, a, a little microcosm of how these previously kind of taboo subjects are gaining cultural awareness and acceptance. And as I say, in the field that I report on, um, I am now approached by engineers, uh, program managers who've read the book, and who say the ideas expressed within it are, although they would have been um, laughed at as total heresy 10 years ago, nowadays you know, have kind of gained that acceptance 
And it's just a question of how you look at the world. Some people are going to pick up the hunt for zero points, and they're never going to get it because they're steeped in the old paradigm. But anyone with a kind of modicum of curiosity about who we are, our place in the, in the universe, and where we're going, is going to resonate with the ideas expressed within it. No question. And, and I think, I hope, feel that it does offer, um, that the science that is expressed within it offers us a great hope and and the possibility for where we're heading. Right. I think that's I think that's uh, I think that's exactly right. You know, the fact that your book uh, is out there, the fact that it's on the market, the fact that it was, uh, the fact that it was. I, I hesitate to use the word allowed, but the fact that it's been published and it's available to the public, that in and of itself says something to me because there is some pretty uh, some pretty paradigm shifting uh, changing psychedelic information in that book and uh, the fact that it's out there means that well they're not that concerned about letting this stuff uh, in its real sense get out there into the public uh, into the public eye well absolutely and you know you mentioned earlier how um, James Sense Weekly had run a story about Boeing getting all of this stuff right. and in fact um, and of course I developed that story uh, and the the, the document you referred to, this document on a project called GRASP, which said that you know it would change the aerospace industry as we knew it if uh, it was actually they were looking at Podkletnov's technology, mm-hmm. if that were proven to be real. Well, of course, that is an understatement. And in fact, even Boeing in its 50-page literature <laughs> on this program acknowledged that fact too. It wouldn't just be aerospace as we know it that would change. Our right. whole way of life would change right. if we had an abundant, clean free supply of energy, and in propulsion terms, um, a propulsion source that would do the same thing. But not just, that would then just open up so many possibilities. For example, space travel, something we've hardly touched on. But, you know, if man is an exploratory beast and and he's proven himself to be so far, there is going to come a point very soon, certainly in terms of our journey as a civilization, where we're going to want to reach out and go and explore the stars. Well, none of the technology we currently have, not even nuclear technology, is going to allow us to do that. We've got to reach for some new paradigm. And all of the stuff we've been talking about tonight, the clues are held within it. And they do offer that possibility of things like interstellar travel. You are talking about bending the fabric of space and time to enable you, perhaps, to travel vast oceans of distance in the cosmos we always felt was impossible. And I find that just tremendously uh, exciting as a possibility. Yep, so do I. And um, one of the reasons that I do this program uh, is I don't, I don't particularly delve into the political uh, uh, arena too much because for me right now it's sort of a, sort of a circus sideshow uh, because um, there, is a, there is a concept, there's a French concept, and I know the French aren't... Uh, are held in sort of disfavor right now in my country, but there's an old French concept um, that translated is called a forward escape. And the idea is that when things get so hairy uh, and so nasty that what you do is put the pedal to the floor and blow right through it uh, and come out of the tunnel in a completely new uh, sort of environment, and I think that is what we're talking about here, Nick. And I think that's what's required now in order for uh, 
for us to move forward as a species, not to mention as human beings, you know, start uh, as, as, as real human beings as opposed to human animals, you know. And uh, I really look forward to it, so. Well, yeah, me too. And um, I know we're running out of time, but certainly yeah, the future isn't bleak. Um, all of this stuff we've been talking about offers the potential to, to take us on that journey that you just described. Um, but we have got to you know, really be thinking about it now. And I think because we're being forced into it, that actually we're going to become pretty inventive. And there is this kind of uh, interesting uh, metric, um, which is called the Kondratiev Interval, which postulates that in any field of human endeavor, you have 55 years between breakthroughs. Uh, the last breakthrough in aerospace terms uh, on that metric was the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Now, if you go 55 years on from that, in 2012, were due for the next aerospace breakthrough. Wow. And actually, you can track that back before Sputnik as well. So it kind of works. Yeah, What's that breakthrough going to be? You know, we've got potentially, we've got seven years to get there. <laughs> but this stuff, being where it is right now, could be where those breakthroughs are going to come. So, you know, I for one, and I'm sure many others too, are going to be watching uh, the decade play out, play out with great interest. Yep, you and me both, Nick. And, uh, well, hopefully we'll be able to uh, to sort of watch it uh, together in a way. Uh, this has been an absolutely uh, uh, extraordinary conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, and uh, I'd love to do it again sometime. Uh, uh, maybe down the road here you can give us an update on some of the things that you're uh, involved with and some of the things that you're privy to that maybe not everybody else is because now you're obviously, you've always been an insider, uh, but uh, you're certainly on the leading edge uh, of this particular uh uh, the particular story that we're talking about here. So anyway, uh, just been uh, just been fascinating. So, well, listen, thanks for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it, and um, it'll be a pleasure to come back and talk to you about um, where all this stuff is is heading and what's you know what, what's what's going to happen over the next few years. It's going to be a great journey. Yeah, it is going to be a great journey. You know, that whole 2012 date brings up some other interesting ideas as well. So it's amazing that uh, some things sort of uh, uh, tend to. Uh, uh, to be conglomerating around that uh, that sort of time frame, at least it feels that way. So certainly does uh, from where I sit as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Nick. Well, hey, thanks again. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Uh, tell uh, the lovely Ali I said hello, and um, and you guys are wonderful. And we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. Uh, stick around on the line for a minute. I'll get this music going, and I'll uh, talk to you in just a moment. Okay. Good stuff. Take care. Thanks. All right, you guys, this is Radio Orbit. Mike Hagan, you've been listening to it. Uh, uh, that was Nick Cook, who we've been talking to for the last two hours, uh, former aviation editor at Jane's Defense Weekly, a fantastically uh, intelligent and forward-thinking individual who wrote a great book called The Hunt for Zero Point. I suggest that you read it. And uh, uh, we'll be back next week with Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. We'll be talking about some of the things that have been happening on the sun uh, recently. And uh, as you all know, Kent is uh, about as sharp as they come when it comes to solar phenomenon. So that'll be a great conversation. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave you with this. This song is called Waiting. And that's what we're doing here. We're waiting. Uh, and it's coming. This is The Origin. This is Mike Hagan on Radio Orbit, KOPN. Different things. Another day. But the things we are never the things we say 